This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have a very interesting and special guest. His name is Dan Biederman, and he is the founder and chairman of uh, Biederman Development Ventures. Dan is the guy who, at a very young age, was tapped to run the company that essentially turned around Bryant Park in New York. And he literally created a brand new model of managing and developing and redeveloping public spaces in a way that is effective and cost efficient and doesn't cost the taxpayers anything. Uh, it's really a fascinating story as to how this came about. And Brian Park begat all these other uh, ventures and parks, both around New York and around the country, and even internationally, they've they've worked in Singapore and in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, I found it to be really a fascinating story. And of all the folks we've had on the show, if you take the ratio of how well known the person is to the impact they've had on on and the number of individuals they've impacted, I think Dan is the lowest known factor to impact of of anybody. Six million people a year pass through Bryan Park, and it's just a, a jewel of New York. Uh, so without any further ado, here is my conversation with Dan Biederman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I know I say this every week. I have a special guest, but I really have a special guest who I'm going to describe him as someone who probably impacts more people on a daily basis and is less known to the general public than any other guest we've had. Uh, his name is Dan Biederman, and he is the person, uh, in addition to running Biederman Redevelopment Ventures, is the person who has turned Bryant Park and other public spaces around from dangerous drug-infested uh, crime zones to really Bryant Park is the jewel of Manhattan. Uh, Dan Biederman, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks. It's great to be here, Barry. So I, I don't want to spend too much time delving into your CV, but briefly, magna cum laude at Princeton, MBA with distinction from Harvard, uh, focusing at on um, uh, both public and international affairs in, in, in your undergraduate work. It's the 1970s and, and 1980s, and I'm familiar with Bryan Park because as a kid, my dad worked on Madison and 39th, and I used to come in and visit uh -huh. him. And I was always told, hey, stay away from the park. Same thing with me and my father who worked in the Grace Building. So so, so that's your first introduction to Bryan Park. The Grace Building literally faces Bryan Park. So from that introduction as a kid, we go to the 1970s and 80s. The park is decrepit. It's filled with homeless. It's filled with drug dealers. It's a disaster. You come along. What makes you say, I have an idea. Let's incorporate uh, an entity to clean this up. I was lucky in that it was a great first job in the field because I'd always wanted to be between the public and private sectors. I wanted to do public sector work but not on public sector terms. So this opportunity came from the Rockefellers of all people out of nowhere and um, – the substance wasn't so difficult to come up with. The politics were miserable. But we uh, got it done. It took a decade longer than it should have. And now we've had 25 years to watch the, the, the improvement. So let, let's back up. 
the Rockefellers, obviously Rockefeller Center, up the street, uh, but that's a good 10 blocks away or, or eight, not eight blocks away. What was their interest in Bryant Park other than it was a horrific blight in, in right in the middle of Midtown? It was the library bear, though. Most people didn't know the Rockefellers really viewed it as their institution, much like MoMA and other places. The New York Public Library, York Public they Library. were huge sponsors U- of uh, – Hugely involved. And Mrs. Astor on her way – it was one of her key institutions. On her way into uh, a meeting of the trustees was accosted by some drug dealers. Mrs. Astor – probably 82 years old, looked mm-hmm. like Mrs. Astor, and they offer her drugs. So clearly the message was, old lady, get out of here. This is our territory. She was outraged and ran into uh, David Rockefeller, first person she sees. And Immediately after being accosted in exactly. Bryant Park. Very lucky for me. She says, young man, he's probably 74 at the time, <laughs> uh, we need to do something about this misery. There are ruffians outside. They just insulted me. Uh, let's fix this. Well, let me – let me. so you're it. a young kid at this point. How do you get tagged to – by the way, uh, Dan, come over here. See this park? It's a mess. Fix it. The only reason I got introduced to the Rockefellers is Larry Kudlow – decided to resign as treasurer of a nonprofit development corporation on West 42nd Street, uh-huh. 42nd Street Development Corporation. They needed a replacement. The guy who ran that, Fred Pappert, knew me. He said, you can do this job. And by the way, a side benefit is that every board meeting, Jackie Onassis is present. You'll get to know her. So I said, sounds good. No pay, I assume. He said, yes. I was 25 years old. He suggested me to the Rockefellers for Bryant Park because they were looking for somebody who might be a candidate to to somehow turn around this mess. So you're on the 42nd Street Development Corp. How does that morph into Bryant Park Corporation? When uh, David Rockefeller, the world's most effective human being for the last hundred years, really, been alive. Oh yes, goes back to his office from the trustees meeting and says to the guy who ran the Brothers Fund. Um, we need to just hire somebody to fix this. We don't know what to do, but we can't have the library be uh, surrounded by drug markets and killings and muggings mm-hmm. and rapes. So uh, there was a competition. I got the job and then um, had no secretary, nobody. I was in an abandoned office building because I didn't want to spend the Rockefeller's money on rent and uh, f- came up with a plan. And the plan was a 90-day Labor, but the politics were six year labor. It was really it was brutal. What was the plan to turn the park around? I, I was, even though I was young, I said, you gotta have models for such a thing. So the best models I found were actually something tied to the Rockefellers, Rockefeller Center, Disney, and Rouse. Rouse had projects that were turning around cities. Uh, Disney had uh, done a fabulous job in their parks, and I think uh, Celebration Florida was a, a beginning thought at the time. So I went to all – Which f- which is the Disney uh, residential, residential town that was sort of built um, with the same thinking behind the Disneyland parks in terms exactly. of ease of use and access and – And every detail exquisite. It's really a wonderful thing. They never decided to go on in the business. So I went to all three companies and said, I'd like – here's a deal. You can run a park in New York City. We're going to take it away from the drug guys. You guys will be our agent. I represent the Rockefellers and the New York Public Library and the surrounding real estate owners. Let's get to it. And they all said, thank you very much. We have better things to do than fight with drug sellers in New York City. But on the way out, I got some useful information, which is I asked them, how much did they think it would take to run a place like this? Well, they said all of them, about a million dollars an acre. So uh, we needed $6 million. It's a six-acre park. My chairman was Andrew Heiskell of Time, Inc., and he said, how much is the city spending now, by the way? I said, about 100000 generously. And he said, okay, $6 million to a $100,000 offset. And by the way, who's spending the money better 
uh, Rock Center in Rouse and Disney or the city of New York? And I said, you know the answer to that. So he said, so 60 to 1 plus a multiplier of 2 or 3. So 180 to 1 is the difference in effort going into those uh, eight properties versus Bryant Park, a public property. And we were off trying to assemble a massive budget to allow us to do all the great things we wanted to do for the public in New York City. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dan Biederman of BDV Ventures. Uh, Dan's firm is the company that essentially turned around Bryant Park as well as dozens of other parks around the country and elsewhere in the world. We'll get to that in a little while. But what I want to talk about now is the political process of taking uh, what is a public space that's fallen into disrepair and has become dangerous and turning it into something else. Uh, you said previously it took you 90 days to prepare the plan and then six years to get the politics settled. Explain that. Um, every, everybody leaped in and said the idea of a privately managed space um, and a program space was a bad idea. Many of them had never been in Bryant Park, but the preservation movement jumped in with both feet to oppose me. Uh, what, the were they thinking you were going to throw up an office building in Bryant Park uh, or just were against it philosophically? There was uh, there were 1,500 parks in New York at the time and the parks commissioner um, said a good thing at one point. He said, you know, they don't all have to be managed in the same cookie-cutter way. Let's try an experiment in one of them, later three, because I took over two other parks in New York. But that contingent from the preservation world wanted them all to be ran managed the same way, which was government in charge and government um, both spending and collecting methods managing the profit and loss statement, which is not a good recipe for success. So so you put together a 90-day – it took you 90 days to put together a plan. What were the key points in that plan? We invented something called programming, which is on urban parks. You can't really afford, Barry, to let um, segments of the park be isolated um, it's not Yosemite National Park where you right. don't need to program. It's it's there are despite the reduction in New York City's crime rate, which we were a key part of. There are a lot of idiots walking around who will do bad things, scare women out of the park, and whatever. So we invented programming, and if you walk into a park that either that one or the one we did in Dallas, the one we did in Newark, you will see a lot of stuff going on that brings people into the park. And the more people who are there, the safer it gets. Sure, the female ratios go up, which is a key indicator of park success. Huh. So we had that. We decided to do some food and beverage, which had never been in the park, restaurants and kiosks, um, an elaborate uh, budget with multiple revenue sources that would allow us to uh, really do an excellent job running this almost on the scale that Disney, Rouse, and Rock Center had suggested. And um, then we've rolled that out across the country. But in New York, it was hard. Blue state political processes are thick, to be kind. Uh huh. And uh, my chairman at the time said uh, – somebody asked him about approvals. He said, everybody in the Western Hemisphere and his brother has had to approve this twice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's why it took six years. It, it was a novel approach. So you would think there'd be a little skepticism from people saying, wait, you want who to take this over? Right. But then that raises the question, how do you manage a park that size with a hundred – even in the 1980s – with a $100,000 budget. That that well, doesn't right. pay for sanitation even. The answers weren't that hard to figure out, but the politics were brutal. In fact, there was a point at which I considered giving up after six years, and I met a very bright land-use lawyer, Steve Lefkowitz, on a train. 
And I said I was discouraged. He said, why are you discouraged? Is this going to happen? I said, what makes you think it's going to happen? They're fighting me at every turn. He said there are four types of projects, and they fit on a matrix neatly. It's something I've never forgotten. I use it all the time. Uh-huh. There are dumb projects and smart projects, good ideas, bad ideas. And then there are projects backed by powerful people and projects backed by powerless people. So he said you can imagine how often bad ideas backed by powerless people happen. They almost never get adopted. Right. He said um, – uh, but this is good, a good idea backed by powerful people. He, he said people. this is a good idea, um, powerful people, and good idea, 100%. Oh, really? Good ideas, powerless people, 25%. Bad ideas, powerful people, 25%. So he said this is a fabulous idea. Your plan is great. The Rockefellers are behind it. So are the real estate owners. This is going to happen. Don't get discouraged. Stop whining and go back to work. So that I needed that pep talk after six years of facing the public process. Speaking of the real estate owners, the buildings adjacent to the park, above and beyond the appreciation that the rest of the city has enjoyed, has accumulated an additional $2 billion in, in value just because of their proximity to the park. Yeah, it was a real eye-opener. The guys who owned the Grace Building initially sold it to Trizac Hawn, which then sold it to uh, Brookfield. Um, he was a very nice guy. He sat me down. He said, let me show you how much money you made this family. He said, "Really? let's let's assume it's about a 20-buck premium for Bryant Park being this good. He said, I think that's modest. But uh-huh. every square foot of our million three square feet – went up in value over a five- to ten-year period by $20 as a result of uh, your efforts. And he said the that goes straight to the bottom line. It doesn't cost more to collect more rent. So he did the math for me, $20 million times $1.3 million, $26 million. And then he said the cap rate – I think Times the, years. Yeah, the cap, the cap rate at the time was 5%. So he said, okay, so 26 divided by 0.05, $520 million. He said, how much have we invested in this thing? I said, well, you guys gave a garden and you've been part of our business improvement district. So about a million bucks, he said. So 520X. He said, can I tell you we've never had a 520X experience did you in ta- our life? Did you tap him for more money? To, hey, you guys well, should I, be putting more cash. I this. told the story my next salary negotiation to the other <laughs> board members. <laughs> and I said, why are you fighting me on 20K? This is um, – there really was a lot of value created. So I now tell the story to prospective clients in other cities who are thinking of – fixing their lobbies or doing other things that really aren't that remunerative for the ownership. This, but you take a public space and adjacent right to the building to it and, and it's a home run for every – that's a win-win across the board. And right now in Dallas, we did a park, Clyde Warren Park, with the help of a bunch of uh, Dallas billionaires. It's very successful and there, there's a real estate boom around it. It's a cap park over a formerly uh, open highway. Uh, between that uptown, divided the city in half, right? right? Uptown Dallas to the Arts District, and it's huge economic generator, both for the private owners and then the city benefits from this. The uh, we did an assessment last year: thirty-three million dollars in real estate taxes added to the city at Bryant Park just for the thirty-three adjacent properties. To say nothing of the guys who are a block away, who are all arguing, you know, come here because Bryant Park is a block away. Right. So it's a it's it's probably in nine figures the added real estate taxes the city's collecting as a result of Bryant Park. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dan Biederman of Biederman Development Ventures, and his company is the firm that really helped turn. Uh, Brian Park around and a number of other parks, both in New York and throughout the United States and actually elsewhere in the world. Let's talk a little bit about your company mission and what should be the proper role of government 
in these in these public spaces. So, uh, but by somewhat serendipity, you end up getting involved in Bryan Park. A decade later, the park reopens. It's a huge success. It's literally a jewel in the midst of Manhattan. Everybody, everybody around it just loves it. I have lunch there pretty regularly. All the all the food vendors and all the stores adjacent to it. These guys just, you know, they can't get people through the register fast That's enough. True. Um, you go in there on a on a, a bright spring day, and it's wall to wall people. It's just it's just beautiful. And another but, thing, Barry, I should I sorry to interrupt the. Um, as a job creator, these projects are enormous. Bryant Park had one and a half jobs when we took it over. Now between the restaurants, among the, the restaurants, kiosks, the programming we do there, it's about a thousand jobs. Really? We, we, and the park we're doing in Newark, we have the same aspirations for that, to create employment in a city like Newark that really needs so, it. So that leads me to my next question. So you finish Bryant Park and it's a huge success. At that point, you're saying to yourself, gee, this is kind of a unique space. It doesn't seem like anybody else is doing anything with this. How did you then say, okay, we have this new model and we're going to take it well, we're I was, take it national? I was lucky. I had another product in Manhattan, which is taking over whole neighborhoods through what are known as business improvement districts. BIDs. BIDs. I see them every on street corners, people yep. sweeping up. You see them throughout Manhattan. So we were the first to do it on a large-scale basis, and my firm, BRV, actually does create them and doctor them. It's a smaller product. Cause, right. Um, and it's a BRV is a not-for-profit. Is that right? No. My, my firm is a for-profit company. Which is the not-for-profit? Not Brian Park and 34th Street are run as not-for-profits, but with private sector bias. Gotcha. We're only incidentally not-for-profits. So um, uh, the uh, there are numerous parks. The traditional way of fixing or creating parks is hire a landscape architect, come right. up with some ideas that are design only, and then spend a lot of money and open it and hope people show up. Um, you guys have a much more holistic approach. We start with programming. And right. we define, that, define programming. That, it's not just movies on Fridays. Exactly right. You, you use it a very different way, the, the word. Uh, well said. It's a combination of things that will make audiences arrive, not only at peak times like lunch and after work, but also in between. So in Bryant Park, you can do about 40 free things. And the park we have in Dallas and the park we're doing in Newark, you can learn to knit. You can learn a language. You can listen to authors push their book. You can listen to business talks. This is all spread throughout the park. That's what should drive the design and the turnaround, not spending a lot of money on a fancy architect. There are just too many cases where fancy LAs or landscape architects or architects have been paid to make a great space and then the space opens and nobody comes. Programming so is what drives people it, to it come. It begins with bringing the, the crowds there and how everything looks is subordinate to that utility to the functionality of the park you could you don't want to do this but you could theoretically have a busy park with relatively cruddy uh uh surfaces and the like the public notices the activities more than they notice the appointments but obviously we try to be exquisite in the physical way also by paying attention to every detail no litter no graffiti um, washing everything, having exceptionally good public restrooms, which is a real failure. That's the nicest public restaurant room in the yeah, city. We really pride ourselves on it, and it's hard to do. Uh, we learned a lot about restrooms. In my MBA class, I'm the only one who was uh, a minor in restroom management, I think. Uh, nobody there's, else was interested in that. <laughs> there's literally a book called Where to Go, and it gives you a list of all the public restrooms, oh, yeah, hotels, whatever, True. in New York, and the Bryant Park 
bathrooms are the nicest bathrooms in the city. We try to be as good as the ones in the plaza and the St. Regis, and we kind of send people up there. There, to, there are literally to learn bouquets of flowers in yes. the restroom. Yep. It, it's not what you would expect from a, a public park restroom. We had to convince women that we had a public restroom they could trust. So the first thing you see when you go through the door is the bouquet of flowers. And we can see women saying, well, they're not going to do that if this is going to be a crummy place to go. So, uh, that's, that's, that's a, that was a, a lot good of psych- early A lot insight. of psychology in development Park of public spaces, including including bathrooms. In, in the last minute we have in this segment, uh, let's talk just about uh, the idea of governance. How do you govern a park this size? It's good to get a group together. If, if it has to be nonprofit, so be it. But the group should have property owners who have a real stake, um, some public officials. Can't be a majority of them because otherwise you're off to the races with the way governments always operated. And uh, then other people who are interested, tenants are a good group to include. Uh, and um, so it gives uh, you access to is, talent, to staff, as well as money. Yeah, that's right. And I, I you know, you know, it's not a, um, a dictatorship. I have to li- answer to a board. But after 35 years of doing this, they tend to concede that I know what I'm doing. So I get a lot of freedom to run the thing the way I want. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dan Biederman of uh, Biederman Development Ventures. They are the firm that helped turn around Bryant Park and literally dozens of other parks throughout the country. And before the break, we were talking about the proper role of government in these public spaces. And, and so let's get into that. What should be the proper role of government? The fault of government in running services, beside parks, but parks is part of it, is they tend to overspend uh, and undercollect. So the profit and loss statement comes out askew. They're for forcing them to assess people who are the taxpayers a lot more than they might otherwise have to. Now, when we were talking about Bryan Park in the beginning, you said they had a $100,000 budget in the 1980s. That seems like nothing. Yeah, that, that was just neglect. But in the cases where government does something anew, they tend to make deals that are above market on the uh, employee side. And then there are revenue sources that uh, they could be collecting from that because it's not a for-profit company, nobody pays attention to. The gov- most governments have a, a revenue source or two, mostly taxes and then some uh-huh. fines. But the private sector looks for every dollar it can in sure. many different ways. So Bryant Park has five different revenue sources. What are they? Keep it. We uh, collect from the restaurants and kiosks in the park over $3 million a year in rent. Okay. We uh, have sponsors of some of our more prominent activities like the skating rink in winter. Bank of America has been a fabulous sponsor for three years. Their new headquarters is right, right on the there. corner of the park, opposite, directly opposite 42nd and, and, and Avenue Americas. Terrific. HSBC is a sponsor. Southwest Airlines has naming rights to a kiosk there. Um, so, And we've had uh, events from – well, I'll get to that later. The, the sponsorships alone are about $5 million. The events we have introducing products, everybody from Starbucks to Microsoft to uh, T-Mobile has introduced products in Bryant Park because of its prominence. doesn't take much time, and it's rare, but when they do it, we make them pay for it. That's another million and a half. And then there's a surrounding business improvement district we mentioned. That's about a million and a half also. And then dribs and drabs of other things. We do some merchandising, not very successfully. Uh, total of about $12 million in revenue. So that's how we got to that Disney if, Rock Center and uh, Rouse number. So if this, wasn't, if this wasn't a, a 
a, a, a corporation running this, what would the city be spending on on Bryant Park on its own? They'd probably, by this point, have figured it out a bit and have uh, a bigger budget, but um, but not twelve would, million dollars. And it would be heavy in uh, uh, talk about minimum wage changes. This would the employees who are the porters would be making twenty five or thirty dollars an hour. That's not the market, right? So you're nice to your people and you're generous with them, but you can't pay them. You can't twice. overpay. You can't pay double you the can't market. Have, the pension deals are so unsustainable in right. states like New Jersey and Illinois that those states are constantly threatened with bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. In truth. So you you can't do that if you're a private operator of a public space. L- little trivia about Illinois: they stopped paying out their lottery winners for a while because right? they literally didn't have the money. So not only is the whole thing a sucker bet that the odds are dramatically against you winning, <laughs> but even if you win, you may not get paid because now you have counterparty risk, which is really quite <laughs> amazing. Good way to put it. So so let's talk about some of these other parks and how the government there interacted with the private sector. Mm-hmm. So in Dallas, you have the, the Clyde Warren Park. Yes. And that's sort of an unusual situation because you had a highway kind of dividing the city in half. How did the park change that? Uh, capped the highway, and we did a beautiful park with a ton of activity in it. it there's some uh, very wealthy people and public-spirited people in Dallas. Jody Grant um, and and uh, was the head with his wife, Sheila, and they, they made a major difference by making a deal with the mayor that the private sector would essentially finance the park and a little bit more if the state of Texas and the city financed the – and a little federal help uh, from uh, – uh, uh, federal funds uh, did the cap, so it was a good. When you deal. say the cap, what is what is the cap? Essentially, a uh, it's it's currently being thought of in many other cities. It's uh, covering the highway so that the noise of an interstate does not ruin the adjacent neighborhoods mm-hmm. in a city. Uh, Atlanta's considering it now. L.A. Uh, I don't think L.A. is going to get there because the costs are going to be too high. And the great thing about Texas is construction costs are incredibly reasonable. So Why is this, that? Uh, Inexpensive labor from the, over the border? The or? absence of unions has something to do with sure, it without sure, doubt. So this project, soup to nuts, including the park, was $103 million. I, I guarantee you in the Northeast it would have been half a billion right. at least. And wouldn't have happened either. But if it had happened, it would have been half a Speaking billion. Speaking of the Northeast, before I want to ask you about – well, let's go right to Canal Side in Buffalo. So this was a vacant space that was kind of just being ignored – what happened with that that space? Well, they'd already started, to be fair, before we got there. It's a very good – and I'll give government, Governor Cuomo some credit. It's a very good state agency, Erie Canal Harbor Development Corporation, which uh, run by smart people. And they they like the idea of the programming, and they've really energized the area um, with not so much money of the taxpayers as some of the other elements of, uh, of Buffalo. Uh, and you now got a public space with concerts and and uh, food and beverage and skating rink that's really uh, a credit to downtown Buffalo. And uh, there's development that's been generated around it, partly by the space, partly just by uh, good Buffalo developers like Benderson and the owners of the Buffalo Sabres doing uh, major things. So if you haven't been in Buffalo a while, it's worth looking at. There's real progress there. So two things I would be remiss if I didn't discuss. One is – the Highline Park in Manhattan, which talk about real estate prices yep. along the, the same effect, that. exactly uh, unbelievable. That's all. Now, your what was your? Um, I've said when I was describing this conversation to people in advance, I've said if you like the Highline, 
which is a huge hit amongst both New York City residents and tourists. I think that never would have happened if it wasn't for the Bryant Park. Well, I don't know if I can take credit for it, but I will say I'm giving you a little <laughs> bit of credit for that. Take ten percent. Oh, thank you, Jamestown. Uh, the owner adjacent paid me a little bit of money to advise Rob Hammond, who's the um, uh, one of the founders of Friends of the High Line, and he listened to what we said. He was a he was a good client. So it's um, been a that fantastic. Was, I, I only had a minor role, but they they did go for some of the stuff that we did in Bryant Park. It's worked out really well, and. Um, there's a park that's – I believe it's in the midst of, of um, construction that was a former subway station that's reopening. Uh, the, the low line possibly. The low line, yeah. yeah what, they're trying to model after the high line and it's kind of clever, but it is underground. It doesn't yes. have the views that the it's high It's a little line darker. Has. Yes. Uh, I don't know much about it. But they did call to ask uh, some questions. It's nice to start so, people out. So outside of Manhattan, outside of New York, what other areas have you guys been working in and, and – what other successes have you had in the United States or elsewhere? Well, the the, be- the ones we always point to that are really finished are Dallas, Pittsburgh, and Newark. In Pittsburgh, uh, what used to be a parking lot next to the Cathedral of Learning was one of our early parks. Uh, it's mm-hmm. called Shenley Plaza. Terrific uh, improvement. And Pittsburgh's a great city to work in, and there's a lot of good stuff. And Newark, there. we don't think of anything getting done when we think of Newark. What what was that park? Thanks to Ray Chambers, who's a uh, uh, buyout guy who then devoted – the rest of his career to fixing downtown Newark and Mayor Booker the um, uh, and Prue, which has been a key backer, uh, along with a few others. Prudential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Prudential's right there. They uh, Their foundation's been deeply involved. Uh, we really took a park very similar in its role there to Bryant Park and have turned it into a lively space after years of it being vacant. It's called Military Park. It's mm-hmm. between the arena and uh, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. Prue just built a, a new headquarters-type building on top of it, right next to it. And um, uh, there were some who said, and it always annoyed me, well, Bryant Park can only be done where there are a lot of yuppies around and huge office buildings. And and and, and it wouldn't, it's not relevant to the minority community. Newark's a majority-minority city, and uh, they have been excellent. The, the, the residents and uh, office workers around there have been excellent patrons of the park so it's, it's, it's a, a kind of weird thing to say minorities don't like parks and outdoor spaces that's a weird perspective they're actually uh, the newark residents who are using it are actually better for us because they'll, they'll spend a little more time there they're a little more patient um uh, they're a little less on their iphones and um it, it's it's been a wonderful thing to see the social fabric of the park change. We put a restaurant, tiny restaurant in that sells burgers pretty inexpensively, and that was hard to arrange. You're doing free Wi-Fi in all of these yep. parks, the Wi-Fi. way Brian Park does Bryan also? Park has a hugely successful Wi-Fi thing, and they're hard to set up. Everybody says they have Wi-Fi, but half the time doesn't right. work very well. But the one in Newark really is working well, and we work well with uh, uh, the government of Mayor Booker. Mayor Baraka has, has continued it. He's been great. He's visited the park three times to read his poetry and play chess and the like. And um, the Wi-Fi system was backed by the city, and we extended it beyond the park. And now you've got free Wi-Fi in that vicinity really? in Newark. We've been speaking with Dan Biederman of Biederman Redevelopment Ventures discussing the public and private space. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue chatting. Be sure and check out my daily column, on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business. 
on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Dan, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been a fascinating – Charlie makes fun of me every time I say that. But <laughs> this is fascinating stuff. And in the intro, I said you may be the person who is le- on a uh, fractional basis least known to greatest impact to the public. P- I can't count – how many people do you guys track through Brian Park in any given year? Six million different visits, and not six million different individuals, but there are six million visits a year. It's it's the most crowded per acre public space in, in the world. In the whole world? Yep. I, I got to think more people go through um, Central Park, but that's hundreds and hundreds of acres. Yeah, their visitor count, I think, is in the 24 million range, something like that. But, but they're hundreds of times the size. 840 acres. We're six acres, but... Um, wow. There's no uh, people always throw up possibilities. Trafalgar Square, I say Trafalgar Square is empty compared to us. There's really? No, yeah, that's, that's well. They have big events, but they're that's a one-off. It's not that busy, right? What about places in Shanghai or Hong Kong? You or- know, uh, Shanghai doesn't have anything with that kind of congestion. I've seen some great parks in Beijing. But um, they get crowded. Uh, they send in the tanks. It's not. It's not as crowded as Bryant. Bryant is jammed, and, and we we like it that way. Do you um, have you guys looked overseas? Have people reached out to you from other countries, other places? You know, I haven't made a big thing of it. I've there are five countries where I've done some advising: uh, the UK, Singapore, Finland, um, Israel, and Canada. Yeah, and um, uh, Singapore. So that's pretty far afield. That, they have something called the Urban Redevelopment Agency, which is very successful. And um, I've been on their advisory panel once or twice. And ba- basically, though, our work is in North America. I've done a fair amount of work in Toronto now. And um, uh, same US- basic concept. They take your model and reproduce. Do you have any competitors? Are there any other businesses doing what you do? It's interesting. The competition is to do parks the traditional way with landscape architects and architects. Uh huh. And that's not us. Um, we have a really narrow niche. And uh, there are a couple of economic consulting firms that say they do what we do, but they've kind of been derivatives. Uh, but we're, it's, it's a very narrow niche, which is the disadvantage. But the great thing is they're – we created the field. You own the space. It's, yep, it's yours. Yep. So we get a lot of calls. We don't. We do some marketing, but not much. We mainly get incoming inquiries from people who've been visited our places. That that was my next question: is Is there enough work to keep a firm busy full time? Absolutely. How, how many employees are it's at thir- uh, BR? Thirteen employees, nine full time, four part time. It's very small, mm-hmm. and uh, there's plenty of work. I'm. Uh, as my wife predicted um, a long time ago, your only problem is going to be staffing the work. They're going to be lined up around the block when you open this. took a while for that to happen, but right. now it's busy. So what other let, – let's go over some other parks elsewhere. Where else have you – Well, these are cities we're in starting from the west, Honolulu, San Francisco, uh, Oakland actually now, uh, L.A., Tempe, Arizona, Houston, Dallas, uh, Green Bay, Detroit, Buffalo, Toronto – Atlanta, um, Newark, Greensboro, North Carolina, Boston. So we've talked about we've talked about these huge successes. What hasn't worked out? Um, once in a while, a company, uh, but more often, a government wants you to answer the questions they ask you as a consultant a certain way. And I have to give my little speech, which I was taught when I was at my first job after business school, American Management Systems. Right. Really good, smart gut bunch of guys. No longer exist. They were sold. But uh, 
they said, uh, as a consultant, you need to tell the client, do you want me to tell you what you want to hear or you want me to tell you what you need to hear? The right answer. Um, once in a while, we get a client who wants us to give them the answer they wanted to hear when they brought us in, which is very often the wrong answer. Right. And it's usually a government agency, but sometimes a private player. Um, and then the, the other kind of client that's a challenge is they are more interested in how much they pay than in how much success they have. They only look at the expense side of right. the ledger with you. Um, so we've had a few of those. But I would say 80 to 90 percent of the client experiences have been great. And I speak highly of all of them, and I hope they speak well of me. I guess so, they do. so when you set one of these up, how much of the funding is coming from outside government, from revenue you generate in the park, plus – Whatever initial seed funding comes from the surrounding Good entities, real estate companies, whatever. We start from the desire to have it all private funding, no government All money. private funding. Yeah, I didn't make a, a, a big fetish of that in the uh, the broadcast, but the, the um, aim is not to be beholden to government practices because you don't have government money. Uh, so Bright Makes Park sense. has not taken any government money of, at any level uh, since it was founded. Um, Wait, so that the park is running for all these years since it opened in 91, and New York City taxpayers are not paying for that? Not a penny. They, they Actually, there was an initial kind of goodbye payment that uh, ended in 1996, and since 96 – 20 years, no – No government money. And some clients can't afford that, uh, but generally – Meaning there's not them. the density that will – Cover that. I mean, there, obviously, they aren't the, the varieties of programming that would allow you to exclude government money. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example where we're going to have to take government money. Like, that. I would think San Francisco has enough population coursing through a downtown space that that should be easy. But Tempe, Arizona, maybe not the same volume of people. Yep. Not yep. as not as concentrated um, uh, density. Well, but we're talking to the Tempe people about a uh, possible use of the techniques we use to build our capital plant, which is borrowing money, um, using the government's uh, in New York City triple tax exempt capacity. Uh, issue a bond in order to build issue, something. Issue bonds. We repay. They don't, they're not on the hook for a penny of it. Uh, and, and so it's just an expensive source of capital. Yeah. We're, the debt service on that has been $50 million total over the over the run. And that's how Grand Central and 34th Street got built uh, uh -huh. with uh, that uh, technique rather than asking government for capital funds, which is always a challenge. Very difficult. And in, in eastern and west coast cities, it's usually tied to some labor deal. It's very expensive. So, so let's talk a little bit about the 34th Street Business uh, Development Company. You have – that goes from the Empire State Building, 5th and 34th. A little east of that actually. To – to Macy's, where you have – what is that? Horace Greeley Park or something like Greeley that? Greeley Park to the south and Herald Square to the north. And all the way west past that to the edge of Hudson Yards, uh, past Penn Station, uh, mm -hmm. the post office. That's all an area run by a business improvement district. Not everything, but most of what you see there as a member of the public. The litter collection, the mm -hmm. capital plant, uh, security officers, parks is run by our BID. And that's funded privately as well? Uh, all private money. We don't accept any government money. Really? That, that's quite fascinating. Um, tell me about a challenge. What was a park that turned out to be successful that when you first came across it, you had to scratch your head a little bit and say, Here's what's one going on here? Uh, Seattle um, that's hugely successful. In that case, we're not running it. We very often at that distance 
tell them what to do and then back off. And there was a very good group, the Downtown Seattle Association, that took mm-hmm. our recommendations whole and um, running with it. It's usually successful. It's called Occidental Park. It's a couple of blocks from the stadia there uh, in the neighborhood known as Pioneer Square. This was a truly violent space. It was drugs, a lot like Bryant Park at the beginning, drugs uh-huh. and really bad guys hanging out and victimizing people. Tons of tech companies a couple of blocks away. None of them were using it. The employees weren't there. So we told them how to program and how to spend a little bit of money without government on various things. The Seattle Parks Foundation and Downtown Seattle Association ran with it, and it's a, a real turnaround. I, I keep track of it long distance. We're done, uh, and they were very grateful. Uh, John Scholes is the now a new head of the Downtown Seattle Association. He's, Why do I know that name? He's, he's, it came up through the ranks, but John said uh, this has been a huge success, and we're really grateful. I'm sure they're spreading the word that this is a great approach. Huh, quite Quite fascinating. So you mentioned uh, Canada and Singapore, and most of it has been in the U.S. Do you find the difference between cities on the coasts and cities in the mainland in the oh, United yes. States? I come back to New York sometime depressed that I'm back in a tough environment for my field. Um, it's because, easier in the middle of the country? Yeah. The uh, Why is that? Is, are people nicer, or is it just uh, everybody's kind of on the same page and you don't have the intrinsic – Interest groups it's, fighting. It's, it's two things. Um, um, unions, um, uh, I think New York State is 35% union workforce. Right. Astonishing number. Uh, New Jersey, California, really unions are in very good control of legislative processes. Because unions the, have been on the wane nationally for a long time. What is it, less than 5% of workers yeah. are now in a uh, union? Yeah, the 11. number is tiny compared to what it was a century ago, a half a century ago. But um, not um, but not in municipalities not in those and three government. states so yeah. much. So um, that is one difference. And the second is there really is a difference in terms of the belief in um, – uh, capitalist system. I don't have to. I started a speech once in Dallas about this is the reason our parks work. And part of my pitch was that, you know, the free enterprise system is a good thing. And blah, blah, blah. and they, one of the guys on the board waved his arm and said, Dan, you don't have to make that speech here. We're in Texas. <laughs> we got now. it. Right. This so is, this is, uh, that's the difference. Um, the, uh, terms of employment, a, a real threat to our field. Um, and it's not just me, it's the little, organizations that are doing the same thing in parks and neighborhoods is this uh, specifying of the terms of employment by government, which is happening in states like New York, New Jersey, and Washington, and California. But when you not say specified terms of... Uh... Well, we now have in some of the cities in those states um, minimum wages of $15, um, um, specified amount of sick leave in New York City, um, uh, specified amount of maternity leave. You know, a lot of these things I did voluntarily, but to to b- legislate across every business in your environment and say all of you must do the following things really, in my mind, goes too far. And for little efforts, we try to do a lot with little. If you're a little company, it's whether you're for profit or not for profit, it's really difficult to uh, do this. Fifteen dollar. Uh, so start. Seattle going up to fifteen dollars by what is it twenty twenty one for there, it's phased in until I think the ni- nineteen but there that is over the next hurt, three or four years yeah it's going to hurt uh, their ability to do things like pick up paper in parks that they privately manage and they know that 
but the the mayor's behind it and they have to be behind it and I thought it was companies with 50 people or more am I confusing that with that, something else I, that that was one of the criteria for New York but mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true in Seattle uh but uh, $15 minimum wage in some lower cost environments Washington's not Right, it's not New York. York. It's a very different. It, that's so a let's challenge. <laughs> let, let's talk a bit because restaurants are such an important part of the revenue stream for these parks. We had Bobby Flay on a few months ago, and he was apoplectic yep. about the changes. He said, "You can't run a restaurant profitably in New York City anymore, given the changes that are going to be phased in." There are people who li- earn their living on tips. I can't pay them $12 an hour. That's too much. It's going to be uh, a challenge. The, the, the restaurants in Central Park um, uh, with um, uh, obviously involvement of the city because they own the real estate um, are going to have a challenge because the Hotel Trades Council um, uh, dominates um, their workforces now. And I don't know if those two will survive. They're great places. Has that been the issue with Tavern on the Green? Has been a Part union of it, issue? The, the reason there weren't so many bids on the new Tavern deal was that the city imposed uh, uh, the Hotel Trades Council on the deal. And um, But to, to be fair to the city, I think Warner Leroy had welcomed them in when he owned Tavern on the Green previously. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, a dicey operation. They, they, I think they only got two or three bids for uh, what really should have been a great opportunity because there were a lot of catering possible. Sure, there. a ton, absolutely. Yeah. At, at one point in time, that was also a beautiful restaurant, and it kind of yeah. fell into yeah. disuse, disrepair, and it, it's not what it was. I don't know what's going on with it now. I haven't seen no, it they, in a while. They, they run a representative restaurant, but the volume isn't what it was because it was cut down. Uh, Warner had turned it into a mega megalith. It's uh, I think he had $35 million in revenue annually, a lot of it from catering, uh, and now uh, smaller. So we we talked about overseas, um, and we talked about the difference in in coasts. Uh, You know, when you look at at some of these other projects, what what stands out when someone first approaches you with, hey, we have this park, and it's kind of a mess, and we want to clean it up. How do you go about starting that process, reviewing that? What's that like? The first thing we do is a kind of an intriguing market share calculation. Um, this comes from a conversation with Eli Broad, who's done wonderful things for downtown L.A., but Eli was too optimistic, in my view, about how many people would visit the public spaces on Grand Avenue after the Disney Concert Hall was built. Uh-huh. So um, I kept warning him, Eli, not as many people are going to visit just to see the building as you think. And then I said, I need to have a systematized way of making that case to clients like Eli, mm-hmm. who's a smart guy and you know didn't really believe me. So we created something called a um, uh, visitor market share uh, calculation. We go out uh, depending on the walking distance of each city, Dallas has a terribly small walking distance. Nobody walks there. Uh, New York, uh, Boston, Washington, San Francisco, walking, everybody walks. Right. So we go out 1,200 feet in those cities and 200 or 300 in Dallas. And then we look at the adjacent hotels, office buildings, residences, retail shops, museums. And we say, how many people plausibly could be in this public space? Uh, and what are we going to have to do to get them there? Because our market share at Bryant Park sounds small, but it's 4% basically of all the people in the surrounding area are in Bryant Park at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. And you say, what happened to the other 96? And the answer is they're on vacation. They're on a business trip. They're in a conference. They're eating at their desk. They're they eat at, at their w- desk. Are, by the way, there are Visited other restaurants. friends uptown. Right. So um, we lose 96% through no fault of ours. But, but 4% is a that's a big number it's of massive. Yeah. But some clients think they're going to get 10 or 20%. So first Not thing we realistic. do is disabuse them of that. 
say Brian Park's been plugging away doing this for 25 years. You're not going to get higher than 4%. And then we say, okay, what's going to drag these people in? Is it knitting um, seminars like we do in Brian Park? Is it juggling clinics? Is it concerts? Is it the reading sessions we have? Is it petanque? Is it ping pong? We have putting green, all those things. We put together a bunch of things on a map and show the client how we're going to drag people into their space at hours they might not have expected to be there, including seasons where in the past Bryant Park was empty in the winter for eight months. It's jammed now between the rink jam. and then around the holidays are all the yep. all the kiosks selling all these different crafts and unique sort of products. It's jam-packed when you yep. go in there. Yep. So um, that's uh, those are our starting points. And from then it's a budget. And then only last do we go to the architects and say, okay, now draw this up for us. We we save the clients a lot of money by not having them uh, spend a lot of money on fancy plans, um, especially in blue states where construction costs are so high. Dallas can afford to do a little bit of that. Uh, the, the park really cost about $23 million, but could have been but less, but the same – Effort in New York above the surface of the park would have been three times the, as much. I was going to say five x. It's only three yeah, times. It's is pretty. Uh, this is. A, I've never this, been sure, but it would have been a very expensive proposition. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. So so what are some of the other challenges you face? You have to get the clients to be realistic. You're dealing with politicos. You're dealing with unions. Mm-hmm. What else is a challenge that people may not be aware of that involves? Once Turning a, a park around. Once in a great while, we come upon something where I say to the staff, you know, this is pushing on a string, to use that Right. Uh, uh, that Meaning metaphor. no impact. Do you not have well, any it's, effect? Well, it's, it's a suburb where there's no, no particular reason. There's no density and there's no reason people within a reasonable distance want to go there. Even if you produce something that's so spectacular that people right. should want to see it as a curiosity. Once in a while, that's a challenge. Other ones are um, – we have there. There's a park I won't name in Boston. We we have two projects in Boston: South Station and Fennel Hall. There's a park I'd like to do there, but I the this is not the fault of the this mayor or the previous mayor. It's the fault of the abutters who are thinking too small about it. It could right. be one of the great public spaces in the country, surrounded as it is by iconic structures. But it's it, one, another big problem is just this small thinking, I call it. It's just uh, let's collect a little bit of money and turn on the fountains and have a concert once in a while. It doesn't get it done. It's not that the people are not smart. It's that they don't have um, the frame of reference to think bigger. And that's a big problem for my firm. I'm in Chicago pretty regularly, and I'm always impressed with how well done their public spaces yeah. are. Have you guys done anything in there? It was fun, funny. Mayor Daly, I'm very fond of him, um, the second Mayor Daly. He was in Bryant Park taking notes one day, and um, <laughs> his chief of staff called me, and he said, he has a question. And I said, I'm coming right down. I want to meet him. He said, no, you, please don't do that. He's on his way to investment bankers in 10 minutes, but he is curious. I said, okay, Drew, I'm going to give you these answers, but only if I can visit him in Chicago. So uh went out there, had an incredible meeting with him. Mayor Daly was a great park mayor. And uh, you're right, the parks really have, have been well done. Um, he did it through a park district, not through BIDs, not uh-huh. through privatization. He didn't really believe in privatization because he's it's all a- It's all city, but yep. unlike New York and other big cities, Chicago's mayor is essentially a benevolent dictator. Yep, yep. Uh, and so we have family there, and one day we were, vi- we were there every Thanksgiving for the past 25 years. And, and we go to the museums. We go to Second City. We do everything 
every I come back ten pounds heavier every Thanksgiving, and it ain't the turkey. But we're walking through a park, and I'm like, wow, these are really beautiful iron uh, fencing, not the usual chain link junk, but like cast iron, beautiful. And I'm like, when did this happen? State Street, they did a nice job. And, you know, I asked him during the meeting. He was very detailed, and I said, you know, you know a lot about this. Um, uh, of all the mayors I've met, you know the most. And that was generally known. And after I asked his chief of staff, where do you learn all that? Because most mayors don't know these details of visual stuff. And he said, his father, of course. Uh-huh. And I said, how did that happen? And he said he took him out in a car on the weekends. Look at this. said, look Richie, at this. look at that building. Now, that looks horrible. And I just told my guy he needed to paint that side of it and take that, that iron uh, casing away. He said he really – his father, surprisingly, the, the, old, the old Mayor Daly, Richard J. Daly, I guess it was, uh, had a very good eye. Uh, but was known as a ward healer and a tough, mean right, guy. But right. He had another skill, which was not highly publicized outside of Chicago. Well, the son apparently inherited that eye because yep. one day he issued a dictate, which is chain link fences down, cast iron fences replacing them. Yep. And you, good luck finding a chain link fence on any of the major parks in Chicago. Yep, They're yep. all now. If you go to parts of Manhattan. You'll see these gorgeous Gramercy Park and some, which has always been a private park. But some of these other parks have these beautiful cast iron fences. But it was, you know, dealers, somebody's choice. They basically issued an edict and 90 days later there were no more chain link fences in in the park. I know I only have you for another 10 or 15 minutes. So let me jump right to... My favorite questions where uh, I ask these of all my guests. Okay. Uh, before we do that, are there any specific questions I missed that anything you want to bring up um, that I may have not gotten to? Uh, I don't think so. Which questions do you think of ask, asking? All of them. The last, the last eight. Uh, so okay, we did some it. of these. So we know what you did before you started working yep, yeah. in this space. Let, let me ask you, who who were some of your early mentors? Uh, there was a guy who's not well-known in the business community, William H. White Jr., who came up with a lot of the theories about movable chairs and uh, the like that we've implemented in Bryant Park. Brilliant guy. He was a journalist. He's known more for the books he wrote, including The Organization Man. Oh, of course. And he was closely linked. Unbeknownst, we can say it now that he passed away about 15 years ago. The Rockefellers supported his work. They thought it was so important. Mm -hmm. Gave him an office and a secretary and uh, consulting deals. Um, There there was one point he took me down to Princeton and he said, little little known to the public, the Rockefellers don't give money to this school unless I say – that the physical improvement is a good one. So I want to really? show you something outside of East Pine Hall. And um, he was he was a tremendously important uh, factor in what we did in Bryant Park. And then uh, uh, the people who helped me get started with these entities other than the Rockefellers, Andrew High School, who was the chairman of Time, Inc., and agreed to be our chairman for many years. Michael Fuchs, who succeeded HBO. him. Yep, Mike, sure. the, Michael's a, um, a brilliant businessman and uh, has been our chairman at Bryant Park of the kind of celebrity entity for about 20 years um, and learned a lot from him. So uh, wait, and if I go to Bryant Park and I, I – first time I ever saw Louis C.K. had to be 10 years ago. Oh, yeah? 
in the middle of the day at Bryant Park. Oh, the and, comedy series? And really? it slaughtered the park. People were falling, rolling, oh, really? literally rolling around in the grass that laughing. Was, that was, was so a great uh, comedy series. The language was a problem. We couldn't get the comedians to work clean. So eventually we But it was it. hilarious. But I thought of bringing it back. It was, uh, it was so – I saw him there. I saw um, Louis Black there yeah. showed up. And I'm sure you could Phenomenal. randomly get – just about anybody else you wanted. Susie Essman was there for the first time I ever saw her. She was so fun, very profane, very um, profane. <laughs> check, Peter, check out her interview with David Steinberg on Showtime. It's hilarious, <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Peter Malkin is a uh, investor. Um, he's eighty-two now. In fact, today he's eighty-two. He um, uh, was the chairman of my BIDs at um, uh, Grand Central and Thirty Fourth Street, and was very. Uh, instrumental in this stuff getting going. And another mentor is my wife, who's uh, a brilliant. She's a litigator with a practice in fine art law, which is a fascinating practice. She sure. kind of formed the field, but she's a very good advisor on a lot of things. She's, uh, she should be involved in that Picasso uh, well, she, case that's going on right now. She has a lot of arts law clients who are, um, uh, have stuck with her over the years, but um, she's a brilliant advisor on a lot of this stuff and negotiation and um, – more than just a litigator or a fine arts lawyer. She's been very important. You, you mentioned White and the idea of the movable chairs. I have to ask, how many of those chairs are stolen each year? Virtually zero. They uh, Really? Yeah, you know, they deteriorate. Uh, they but, certainly – they look like they're good enough to sit on but not good enough to take. Well, Is that it's the partly thinking? that. We knew it would go fine because when uh, the first parks we'd seen with chairs, these were actually for rent. They weren't – for free use, right. were uh, Green Park and St. James Park in London. Uh-huh. Uh, the Queen's entity, which is called Royal Park Enterprises, put them out. And we said, um, that's interesting. They're not going anywhere. I once asked somebody, why don't they disappear? question everybody asked me about yeah. my parks. And they said, well, they belong to the Queen. Who would take something that <laughs> the Queen's property? So um, so that ca- that's more than just stealing a chair. That's a serious uh, – Yeah, but also Bryant Park's so busy, it's hard even to have a petty crime. We we took crime from 500 felonies a year to zero there. Right. And uh, it's it stays in the zero to one range. Every year there's something bad a that happens. A fight or something stupid. Yeah, an assault. Uh, we had one weird incident with a guy – Took a machete out and hacked away at a woman, which was really upsetting. Uh, because there are you know, that was recent. That yeah, was in the paper. There, there's some disturbed people on the streets yeah, now. There's nothing you could do. There seems to be more than ever. Recently. A little more. Yeah. Um, so let me keep plowing through yep. this. So um, we haven't really talked about books, which is always a favorite topic. Sure. What what books influenced you, um, or what other books have you just found to be uh, interesting and and worth mentioning? I stopped reading books when we had kids, and then I said I got to st- start again. So um, I'm I'm back reading again, forty, fifty books a year, and they um, fiction. Uh, they haven't been influential. I just read them for escape. I like Trollope and Hardy and Fitzgerald, um, and then management books. I've always spent half of my reading time reading management books, trying to learn stuff in business. So. Collins was interesting. Good to great is that? What yeah, we're very about? good. I've read mm-hmm. two of those. And um, Mark McCormick's books, which nobody mentions anymore, are really good. But what's uh, the name uh, of uh, whatever things? Uh, what they didn't with teach the sharks you? Or what something? they didn't teach you at Harvard Business School? Right. It's kind of good horse sense about business management. Um, and then um, Alan Weiss is a great one on pricing your consulting services, which a McKinsey, an ex McKinsey 
friend of mine recommended. What, and, what is Alan Weiss's book? What's the name of it? Uh, pricing. I'm forgetting the name. Um, uh, value. I'll, I'll, I'll find value it pricing, and, and like I'll that. include it on the, the page when we, we talk about it. And then like most privatization guys, I've read uh, Ayn, Ayn Rand and um, – uh, it's it's a trial to read, but uh, Atlas Shrugged I, I, is uh, – <laughs> Last week I had Michael Covell on who in his list of books mentions Ayn Rand. Yeah. And he says to me, he goes, I know you can't stand her. And I said, it's not that I can't stand her. It's that I was assigned Atlas Shrugged in college <laughs> and it was eight of the most miserable weeks of my well, life. Like the speech is – It's 160 pages. One speech is – It's you know, unbearable. It, it's you – know, it's it, brutal. I, I kind of semi-minored in English in college, and they emphasized when we did The Wasteland, there's no way this poem is regarded as one of the great triumphs of English literature without the editor, who I think was Ezra Pound. Uh-huh. Um, and there's no way Fitzgerald was any good without Max Perkis, Perkins. Um, and Ayn Rand must not have had an editor who had Clearly. any ability to say anything to her because right. it needed to be edited. Whereas The Fountain has a little more under control. And, but After I'm, Atlas Shrugged, I never – I basically I, – I had a similar experience with Stephen um, uh, – what's his name? With uh, The Stand. Um, I, I got through The Stands and everybody loves uh, loves the author and uh, – um, It's trial. Huh? I, I just hated <laughs> the – four-fifths of the way through, the whole book takes this crazy turn and it goes off in a different direction. And I'm like, wow, you just – Set me up for eight hundred pages and pulled the rug out from under me. The, the other um, I've read for enjoyment. I've read Philip Roth. I'm within, unfortunately, two or three of finishing all of his novels, and I just adore. Portnoy's complaint work. was the story of my childhood, so I, I <laughs> completely related to. He's got to a him funny story about Portnoy's complaint that he tells in one of the films about him, where his he told his mother he sat her down about the liver mother. or something else. No, he said, you know, this is going to be very upsetting to you, but there's a book that. I just finished that is going to be a massive hit and it kind of makes a little bit of fun of our family and I just wanted you to understand he explains the whole thing and then um, they go away so after his mother died he asked his father years later what what was mom's reaction after I told her that I was going to have this huge hit and be a celebrity? She said, he said, she started crying. And he said, I knew it. I knew it. I knew she'd be upset. He said, not about what you think. She started crying because she thought you were having delusions of grandeur. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Said, My son is crazy. He thinks he's going to be a famous author. That's funny. So, but so, no comments about the actual, uh, no, the actual book. That's not what she was concerned about. And that, I, American Pastoral is my, fav- my favorite and a lot of people's. Never read it. Oh, it's it's fabulous. If, if really? you're interested in Newark, six or eight of them really have fabulous Newark stuff. In fact, he had an exhibit in Newark, um, the, the library where he first worked as a young boy. He um, had an exhibit there about his family and childhood. So I, I know i got to get out, get yep. you out of here in the next minute or two. Let me jump to my last two questions. Yes. So a millennial or a, a new college graduate coming out of school – who are interested in pursuing your career path, what sort of advice would you give to them? I always tell them the first job isn't that important what it is as long as your boss is a smart person and cuts you in on some of the action. So mm-hmm. I had an internship or two where I was put in the back room and, and then I had an internship or two where I was included in the work of the office. So that's what we do with our interns. So get a job that's interesting to you on your career path, but it doesn't matter so much who you're working for as to the company. It does matter – who your boss is. Look for a really smart boss who can teach you certain things. And then at that point, 
I, I often say to people, 24, 25, 26, time to be an entrepreneur and um, take risks. Get out there. Yeah, my son and daughter pursuing that route, and uh, my wife's quite an entrepreneur too in her own field of art law. So um, uh, it's easy to fail when you're young and you get up, dust yourself off, and start mm-hmm. over. Tougher to do that when you're a little older. Yep, yep. And our our last question: What is it that you know about the development and management of public space today? that you wish you knew back in the late 1980s when you were starting, or early well, 1980s? Uh, two or three things. The programming didn't occur to us until we opened Bryant Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, insights I've had about managing the profit and loss statement for a um, uh, quasi-public entity only occurred to me over time. So I probably had some dead ends and wasted a little money early um, but um, no one particular insight. It just um, it took a lot of uh, reading and travel. One thing I'd certainly say is you need to travel a ton. If you do your same path to work every day, you're not going to have insights occur to you. You need to get out and see what other people are doing. I kind of knew that from the beginning a little bit, but it's become more instrumental as time's gone on. Dan, thank you so much for being so thank generous you, with Barry. your time. It's been fun. This is this has been. Fantastic. Before I go, I would be remiss if I didn't thank my head of research, Michael Batnick, and my producer slash engineer today, Charlie Vollmer. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm going to do that again. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.